0: the biggest stories from the pages of the
1: London Free Press and lfpress.com. This is the London Free Press podcast with your host, Rachel Gilbert.
0: Welcome to the London Free Press podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Gilbert. Uh, this podcast is typically being a, a rehash or maybe expansion on a lot of the stories that our reporters cover. But this week, this story is so big and so powerful that this episode will be sort of a companion piece. So uh, I encourage you to go and read the story on LFPress.com um, that Randy Richmond wrote um, because he's been working on this story for several years and uh, it reads like a book. Uh, it's, a, it t- it's about an hour read, um, but it's amazing. And it's called The Boy With Two Names, A Scattered Family, A Nation's Shame, and a death in jail. Hi, Randy. How are you?
1: I'm good. How are you doing?
0: Good. This story, um, as I said, reads like a, a a storybook. You, I'm sure you could write a whole book on this, truly. Um, and you've been working on it for at least a couple of years. First of all, how did you even find this story?
1: Well, the, I, I, we learned back in 2021, in March 2021, there were three deaths that year at, at Elga Middlesex Detention Center. And so when we hear about them, you know, like every reporter, we try to get a hold of the family and our friends and, and find out what happened. So this name didn't come out right away. The name of Clayton B. Sinette, uh, one of his two names. And but I found out the name and I found out, found his sister, gave her a call. And she just said, well, there's a lot to this story. And she started telling me about how She and some of her siblings were part of the 60s scoop and how it was a split family and a reunion and all kinds of things. So we agreed right there on the spot that I would take a little more time. um, Didn't think it'd be a couple of years, but take a little more time to work on this story and listen to their stories. And then from there, just went to talking to other family members and going through records, uh, things like that. To find more about the boy, um, with two names, Clayton Bissonette and Danny Boy Armstrong were his two names and his family especially three children who were um, the main characters besides Danny who were scooped up uh, in the the 60s and 70s and 80s.
0: Yeah, Um, so this story follows a family over generations and and you found it obviously after Danny's death at uh, Elgin Middlesex Detention Center. Um, We traced Danny's family back to his mother, uh, Mary Ellen, who also went by the name of Helen sometimes and what her life looked like before she had children, you go into her parents, her two husbands, and all of her children. She died tragically in Windsor. So let's kind of start there when Mary Ellen died, um, or Mary Ellen, let's talk about her children, first of all, before she passed away. She passed away again again in 1973. But let's start with her and what her life looked like and, and kind of how this all started to unravel.
1: Right. And Mary Ellen, I mean, uh, a fascinating person. Um, the slight, uh, described as a beautiful uh, young Indigenous woman who grows up, um, you know, the different documents, and you, you can't always tell which, what is the real story, what is it, but you describe her um, as, as having some jobs, but she, you know, she's growing up uh, somewhere in a First Nations community or nearby, and she she, you know, marries very young the first time, has children very young, her husband, first husband goes to jail, so she marries somebody else and has more children. And you know, we, we it's not much education. Um, we're not sure if she went to residential schools. The family suspects she might have. Certainly, she was part of that generation, mm-hmm. and certainly would have been affected by others around her that went, or if her own parents were there. And it's just a, an interesting life. She became almost mythical to the the kids that didn't know her, in the sense that she was, you know, small but tough and loyal and fierce but also uh, fell into alcoholism and stealing, basically almost lived on the streets in Windsor by the time she died. And at some point in her life, when she had a whole, a lot of kids, all of her children, she kind of left the family and, you know, wandered away, drifted. We're not sure how often she came back and forth, but they all had a a connection with her, except for the ones who were scooped like um, Danny himself, you know, gave the graves, bought a a gravestone for her long after she died. And so there was always some sort of connection. So we don't know how fluid her relationship was with the kids, but a a fascinating story. I mean, her roots go way back. Uh, Indigenous, French, Canadian, you know, very, very Canadian roots Mm -hmm. uh, in sort of Northern Ontario. Yeah. Fascinating person. And, you know, I, I wish I could have found out more about her to tell you the truth, but if you look at the photographs, you just see this almost, child when she had children
0: yeah it's odd because through this through your story you you mentioned several times that there isn't a lot of information about her and the information that we do have about the family and all their connections is very piecemeal um so there isn't you know a strong history in this family because some of them have some information some have others the children didn't grow up together a lot of them um and i i find I found that interesting because a lot of us do have solid family histories that we can trace back, and maybe we take that for granted. You know, in families like this, they don't have that, right?
1: Right, and and we and you know we use the word a lot through the story of a fragmented family and you know fragmented story, and it's yeah. d- definitely true. I mean, there's so few photographs compared to you know what we we might have if our families stayed together. They have a photograph here and a story here and a kind of myth mythical story here uh, a couple documents some have documents some don't so they didn't you know they didn't grow up together all of them the ones i talked to did not grow up together they don't have a lot of childhood photographs mm-hmm. they don't have a lot of documents um and you know one of the main characters adrian who was one of the three uh children who was scooped you know she grew up with abuse so spent a lifetime you know fleeing abusive men. And when she fled, she just left everything behind. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's all kinds of things, records, photographs that, you know, lots are, of people would expect lost. to have. And yeah, they're all gone. They're whatever they're, you know, blown into the wind somewhere.
0: Right. Let's talk about uh, the children because Mary Ellen had nine children. Um, And and what happened to all of them? She's, she didn't raise all of them.
1: No, she didn't. so she had the first set. Uh, and I it always, it's, I always have to think about this because it gets kind of confusing. But she got the had the first set uh, with a man named Simon Bessonet. She had the second set with a man named Sam Armstrong. Sam Armstrong um, kept the Bisonette kids and one of the Armstrong kids, one of his own, Danny. The other three uh, Armstrong kids, Adrian, David, and Paul, they were uh, put out for foster care and adoption. And it's not clear why. Uh maybe he didn't think they were his children. That's the one family story. In any case, you know, there's this basically an older set of of siblings and a younger set with two different fathers.
0: Mm-hmm. And the
1: younger set is what I focus on. Uh, the three that were scooped, Adrian, Paul, and David. It, you know, as the story said, we don't want to recap it, but they took years, decades to find each other. And then to their surprise, they found this other set of half siblings and in the middle of the two was Danny who was biologically the younger sibling but lived with the older siblings he was kind of that connection between Mm -hmm. the two sides and that that really made him kind of key to all their lives
0: Mm -hmm. and so you follow all of the all of the younger siblings from the second set in your story um and so now as as adults they found each other how how did they find each other did they no, they didn't know about the other set of siblings, but they knew about one another. Is that right?
1: Eventually, yes. And, you know, Adrian, who she was always searching her whole life. She really wanted to find her other family. Paul was kind of ambivalent. David was, you know, promised his, his uh, adoptive mother, whom he loved, that he wouldn't go looking. But when she died, that, that, he said that promise was broken. So we started looking. They all started looking, getting the same idea to find each other around the early 2000s, late 1990s. So they went to the official. Channels, the adoption services of Ontario. And they kind of got first they were all trying to find their parents, but their parents had died. But you know, to their credit, the adoption services said, But you have siblings, would you like to meet? And so they that led to emails and phone calls, and then a very nice reunion, Mm -hmm. but a bit frightening because you don't know, as Adrian says, what if her brothers were bad people, right? If they were mean, what if they didn't like her? What if she didn't like them? All these questions, right? And so they had a meeting. And then Adrian and, and David just did a little more research and to their surprise found this other set, um, which turns out not to be even the final set as we find out later in the story. Um, their father actually immigrated from Meyers and left the whole family behind a whole other branch of the story. I could not get into. Yeah. So yeah, they, so they found them and then they met them. And then it became, you know, a couple of decades, the last couple of days, decades of trying to figure out how you fit into All these brothers and sisters you never knew you had, and you know those of us who grew up with our brothers and sisters, it's still hard sometimes to fit in as adults, right? Sure, absolutely. Relationships, yeah. Yeah. So they have, but they had that added layer of not growing up in the same household, not having the same family stories, right? And that really made and makes it difficult.
0: A lot of the children who didn't grow up with uh, Mary Ellen and and either of her husbands were in foster care they they were adopted by white families um some of them had a had a great life some of them really had traumatic a traumatic upbringing um but you you do have a threat of trauma for a lot of them in throughout your story um in in different ways
1: right and you know it's it's very interesting because let's just take the two two of them adrian and david so adrian grows up in she describes it as a very abusive household. She couldn't wait to get away. She ran away a couple times. She tried to kill herself. She, you know, she did things, you know, just to get away all the time. She was sometimes sent to foster care and back. She calls herself like, I was a bad kid at times. So she ends up, you know, running away to Toronto, you know, getting involved with bad men, horrible relationships. Her environment was not great for her. David's environment, he loved it. He had supportive parents, loving siblings, Um, you know, uh, his siblings i have looked up them, you know, online and they're, you know, accomplished people. They stay in touch with him. But still when he finds out he's adopted and he's indigenous and he's not who he thought he was and all these, you know, cultural layers and, and identity concerns, he ends up, you know, stealing liquor and running away to Toronto and getting, going to jail and, basically down an even you know parallel path with a with adrian in the sense that he didn't mm-hmm. you know he ended up being addicted on the streets of toronto he was homeless so you know it's it's difficult i find it difficult uh like i don't you know lots of us don't have problems about our de- identity mm-hmm. but it's such a devastating thing to learn um Even you might have felt you're different and to find out. And, you know, so again, Adrian, bad environment for her ends up on the streets. David, great environment, but the trauma still ends up on the streets. Right. It's just, just goes to show you how devastating it can be.
0: Sure. Yeah, I, I was going to mention the identity piece, because all of the children have kind of mentioned that they struggled with their identity. They were indigenous, but some of them had an Irish father. Um, some of them grew up with white families. So, you know, it sounds like they struggled and maybe still do with with their identity, like where I'm not purely indigenous. I'm not purely white. You know, I'm, I'm kind of getting uh, discrimination from all sides here.
1: Right. Uh, I mean, David talks about that a lot that, you know, he kind of tries to play it as well as he can. He's a really um, he was a mayor for a while. He's he's a really gregarious guy. So for him, it's well, I will be what you want me to be or what's best for me at that moment, I'll be indigenous if I'm with indigenous people. I'll be white if I'm with white people. I'll be Irish, Canadian if I'm with white people just to get along, just Mm. to, to ease in. Adrian, you know, is is very committed to indigenous culture and spirituality, but he, you know, even she says, "Well, ah, it's just so hard in Canada these days." You know, she goes to a ceremony and things like that, and she comes back saying, "I want to live in the woods and I want to live out the land," but she says, "Well, right. how can I do that? I also want a paycheck and a nice house." Um, you know, sure. so Paul the third, he said, Paul is like, "I just I'm comfortable where I am right now. I'm more white than indigenous, so I'm going to stay like that for now." And there's no right or wrong way. Each one is kind of trying to balance those parts of their identity uh, as well as they can. And it's it's very challenging for them.
0: Did any of them talk about being in residential schools, going to residential schools at all?
1: No, they were like the generation. So they they're, worry about their parents went to, but they were all more of the generation that was kind of uh, scooped. So the residential schools were starting to be shut down. People recognized they were bad so then the provinces took over child welfare and started, you know, putting indigenous kids in so-called, you know, good middle class white families. So they were more part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and if you look at say Mary Ellen if you know that generation that went to residential schools or their parents, you know, then they were trying to raise kids. So who we were then scooped? It was just, it's just a mess. It's just a mess of 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 family trauma. Mm-hmm. Um but they were all scooped, the three were scooped in the sense that they all were adopt, foster care and adopted. Some of the other ones in the older family were scooped now and then, Danny was scooped now and then, sent away. There's, it's amazing stories. There's Danny's cousin told me that, you know, there was a moment, I couldn't get into her because it wasn't her story, but, you know, there were moments when child welfare was coming to the community and, and kids were hiding in trees and behind sheds and things like that because they did not want to get scooped up. It's yeah. horrifying stuff, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um... And and this can't be, you know, we we found this story because Danny eventually ended up in jail and died in jail of a suspected overdose. And, and we'll go into that a little bit more in a minute. But um, it, there's got to be other stories like this. You, you know, the only reason we know this is because Danny died and you traced it back. But there's got to be so many other families who have lived through the same horrors and traumas.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, they, the, the best estimate is 22,000. Mm -hmm. Um, children were scooped up in the from the 60s to the 90s Mm -hmm. and I talked to uh, official organizations um, people who had been scooped and they had the similar like they were all everybody I was talking to like they have all struggled with identity some with uh, substance abuse some with relationship problems so yeah uh, you know these stories on and on and you know I don't think we hear enough about them there are stories about the 60s scoop but it's not that well known, uh, really. I mean, no, it took Canadians a long time to learn about residential schools. Mm-hmm. This is to me like the next phase of our education as a country. How we have sure. to recognize what happened, and it was it was province by province. So it's kind of there's not one big, you know, bad guy here. <laughs> there's like lots of different agencies, and in some cases, you know, the agencies thought they were doing what they should be doing, and that's the time at the time, right? You know taking saving children as they call it even though it was like you know a horrible thing to do
0: yeah yeah let's talk about danny because danny uh who who also goes by the name of clayton uh the boy with two names uh was raised by his father and uh, and hadn't had a pretty good life and and got so was was into drugs and alcohol then got sober then uh got hooked on um prescription painkillers is that right
1: Right. So, he, you know, he, it's 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 hard because he didn't talk much about his life, even to his wife. But, yes, he, he seemed to be doing fine. Um, no one knows for sure. It sounds like he went to some sort of uh, school or institution now and then back and forth between his dad, but always came home to his dad, uh, Sam Armstrong. And then there's a clue, though, that things weren't that great because when he was in his 30s, he started getting some drinking and driving charges. But then he met a woman woman named Tracy and they got married and she had two kids and he settled down and he was doing great just great they had a great life together mm-hmm. a good guy good father good husband hard worker but you know so often in the early 2000s uh, he had an injury he fell off a ladder and in those days the quick solution by the pharmaceutical and medical community was prescription painkillers mm-hmm. and he started taking Percocets and then that led to the you know the great wash of Oxycontins that was you know being prescribed to everybody highly addictive he got addicted to that Mm -hmm. and then that broke apart his marriage and then you know not many years later you know he got caught drinking or or driving while having prescription drugs in his system now these drugs that were in his system were not illicit Mm -hmm. he was prescribed all of them his lawyer says Mm -hmm. sounds like there's a lot um which is also a problem right that maybe he's having too many but you know he Shouldn't have been driving, obviously, but he was driving with prescription drugs in his system. He gets in an accident right in front of a police cruiser, gets arrested, rightly so, um, and then goes to court. And in court, you know, he he got, you know, he took, he got 120 days in jail. You know, there's debate whether that was a proper sentence or not. Right. Of course, you know, 120 days at London jail can be the worst thing they can have to can happen to you. I mean, again. We've written about this before, yeah. But you're sending highly addicted people to a place where there's lots of drugs. It's just illicit, illicit drugs, right? It's just not a great place to be.
0: Mm-hmm. And so Danny died in uh, in hospital in March of uh, was it 2021 of yeah. suspected overdose. And uh, and typically in the in the media when someone passes away, we we are told their name, but in this case. It it just said that an unnamed person died at the Elgin Middlesex Detention Center.
1: Right. And this is a problem in Ontario and that, you know, the chief coroner's office has identified and the Canadian Civil Liberties Association has identified. Nobody tells us, the public, when someone dies in jail. There's no release. There's no report. It's just, it happens. And if it wasn't for family and friends tipping off reporters, I, I don't think we'd ever know. Mm-hmm. And so in this case... The name just didn't come out mm. and, you know, just kept um, being, he was sort of the unnamed guy on the list. I know that there were some families of other inmates who knew his name mm-hmm. and at one point they put up a cross for him um, and they didn't know, they spelled it incorrectly because they didn't know, like nobody knew. He just is sure. unnamed on the list. And, you know, so that that's a, a big problem. I mean, there could be people dying any month and unless a family member tells the media, we're never going to know about it. And in this case, it kind of was really reflective of me of, of a lot of the problems, the fact that we didn't know who he was, and that I'm not sure anybody knew who he was um, that well, because he kept so much hidden, right? And he kept so much hidden because of the horrible life he'd gone through.
0: Trauma, for sure. So that that's kind of where your story began. And then you traced it back and back and back all the way to his mother. And and this is how we learned about this family. Um what can we learn from all of this? I mean, you've put so many hours into this story, years even. What can we learn from stories like this?
1: I think what I, I learned, I hope other people learned is, first of all, just the magnitude and devastation of what our country does uh, and continues to do to Indigenous people. The story talks about the sixty scoop, and I hope people, I hope it awakens people up for the you know, for the real life drama of what happened. And, and, you know, there's that old saying that a million people hurt or died is a statistic, but one is a tragedy. When you bring big events or or, or waves of problems down to three or four people, it becomes more approachable, more significant to human beings somehow. And I hope that does that. I hope mm-hmm. people awaken to this. The need for us to recognize what happened, the need for the federal government to apologize about it, the need for... Perhaps better compensation. Just all the concerns around 60s scoop and all the generational problems that are happening because now it's called the millennial scoop. I mean, Indigenous kids are way overrepresented in our child welfare system in Canada and foster mm-hmm. care. It's it's more than half mm-hmm. are Indigenous, and you know it, it's again it, it brings us to the jail and the justice system, and uh, we're failing people. We're failing you know, Indigenous people, Black people, White people, we're feeling, feeling, failing everybody in our jail system, in Ontario especially. And, you know, I, you know, media in London have been pounding on that door for a long time and it's slowly opens, but it needs a lot more of our attention uh, because a lot of people just don't care, right? So I'm hoping that people care and learn. I mean, I'm not expecting any great results from this story, I'm not expecting things to change overnight i just hope it's one more mm-hmm. story that fuels canadians knowledge and awareness and perhaps change
0: i think i think that's why it's important to publish stories like this and research them and uh find out more about these lives that even the people living them don't know all of the details about right so
1: yeah absolutely like sometimes you know sometimes you just there's times i thought well, why am i telling this story it's like well Sometimes the story just deserves to be told because it's a story and the people deserve their voices and, and they do this family. They were open and willing to talk to me and courageous. I thought mm-hmm. to talk to me, and so they deserved to be paid attention to.
0: Will there be more coming about this story? Are you going to, are you investigating any other angles? Can we watch for more from you on
1: this? I'm not sure about that yet. I mean, it, I, I would love to learn more about the Irish family too and their, immig- sure. their immigrant story in Canada, right? I'd love to know more about everybody involved. I think I'll keep an eye on, on what happens with 60 Scoops, foundation and organization requests. Um, I have no plans now. Just let this one sit for a while and, and see what happens. But for sure, it's it's brought me into contact with many great people who focus on this issue. So I hope I can keep working on that.
0: Yes. And um, I encourage anyone uh, listening or watching this to go and read Randy's story at uh called The Boy With Two Names. Thank you so much, Randy, for being with us today. We will absolutely follow up with you when we uh, get something else from you. Thank you.
1: Thank you.